This is the 2020-2021 Child Health and Advocacy Experience Podcast. This is a four-part educational series produced by pediatric residents for pediatric residents. The focus of this series is on race, racism, and health equity. The topic for today's podcast is being a bystander, and our special guests are Dr. Jewel Mullen and Dr. Tina Ward. I had a patient who was a 13-year-old boy with autism who was black. He was a really sweet kid but would get really anxious when his mom left the room, and she was the only one who could calm him down. One afternoon, she went downstairs to the cafeteria while he was taking a nap. His nurse came in to give him his medications, and he became really upset because his mother was gone. He started pacing around the hallway outside his room, asking for her, and the nurses couldn't get him back into his room. Someone ended up calling a code gray, which was when I was called to the room. When I first arrived, he was pacing around, but was overall pretty calm. But within a few minutes, the hospital security arrived. This, of course, made him more upset. He got agitated. He was trying to push past the security guards. Well, eventually his mother arrived. She was really quickly able to calm him back down, and he went back to his room. This experience really struck me because I felt like he was treated very differently than another kid would because of the color of his skin. I felt like I couldn't control the situation. I didn't know what to do to help him. And I felt, as his doctor, like I should have done something more to help him in that situation. I took care of a little girl on wards who immigrated with her family to the U.S. from China. English was their second language. Um, She was admitted with several days of high fevers and was undergoing extensive workup. And one day, her mother, who was really anxious, asked one of the docs to interpret lab results to them. And he explained using medical language. And the mom listened with a, a very confused and nervous look on her face. And she asked us a bunch of follow up questions that this doctor tried to answer, but it wasn't long before. He grew visibly impatient and a little dismissive through his words, his tone, and his body language. And then he ended the conversation after a not-so-unreasonably long exchange, and then we left the room. I felt guilty for not speaking up, particularly because I felt I'd seen in real time where the gaps in communication were taking place, and maybe that was because of our shared cultural background. Um, But I didn't want to be disrespectful to the attending by butting into the conversation. And I did feel rather sensitive to the hierarchy as a new intern. And, you know, ironically, I I felt a sense of being disrespected almost on her behalf. A, A bit of feeling protective, maybe, probably because she reminded me of my grandma who immigrated to the U.S. from China decades ago. And, you know, I couldn't help but wonder if this interaction would have gone differently if the mom didn't have a thick accent or if an interpreter was even used. Dr. Tina Ward is a board-certified family practice physician and current president of the ABPA, or Austin's Black Physician Association, which is dedicated to the health and education of the African-American and underserved communities. She has spent her career dedicated to improving the quality of health care provided to the underserved population with an emphasis on patient advocacy and education in order to help eliminate health disparities. Dr. Ward is a passionate patient advocate and healthcare professional. 
In 2000, she opened her own practice in Austin and sold it in 2008 to pursue other interests and spend more time with family. Since then, Dr. Ward has worked as a medical consultant, as an active volunteer in her community, and now as a leader in the nonprofit community. As co-founder of the original organization back in 2005, Central Texas Association of Black Physicians, she has been committed over the last 16 years to providing critical opportunities for physician support, networking and engagement, and student mentorship. She is passionate about inspiring and motivating young people interested in healthcare careers. She received a Bachelor of Science in Nursing at San Diego University and worked in nursing prior to embarking on her career in medicine, completing her medical degree from the University of Illinois at Chicago. She completed her internship and residency training at Breckenridge Hospital and has been practicing medicine in Austin for over 20 years. Dr. Jewel Mullen is the Associate Dean for Health Equity at the Dell Medical School, as well as an Associate Professor in the school's Population Health and Internal Medicine Departments. She also serves as a Senior Consultant for Ascension Seton. Dr. Mullen wears many hats, including that of internist, epidemiologist, public health physician leader, and the former Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for Health in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Her career has spanned clinical research, teaching, and administrative roles focused on improving the health of all people, especially those who are underserved. She is recognized nationally and internationally as a leader in building effective community-based chronic disease prevention programs and for her commitment to improving individual and population health by strengthening coordination between community, public health, and healthcare systems. Dr. Mullen hails originally from the Northeast and served in several important state roles, including Commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Public Health, as well as the former Director of the Bureau of Community Health and Prevention at the Massachusetts Department of Public Health and Medical Director of Bay State Mason Square Neighborhood Health Center in Springfield, Massachusetts. She has held faculty appointments at the New York University, University of Virginia, Yale, and Tufts University School of Medicine. She is board certified in internal medicine and received her bachelor's degree in Master of Public Health from Yale University, where she also completed a postdoctoral fellowship in psychosocial epidemiology. She graduated from the Mount Sinai School of Medicine, where she was elected to Alpha Omega Alpha National Medical Honor Society and completed her residency at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. She holds a Master of Public Health Administration from Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government. We are incredibly pleased to have Dr. Mullen and Dr. Ward here with us today, and we hope you enjoy this discussion. Hi, Dr. Mullen and Dr. Ward. Thank you both so much again for being with us here this morning. Um, I think all of us in medicine are aware that the physician bystander effect exists, um, and we're all really looking forward to hearing your expertise in terms of what we can do about that. Um, so to kind of start off, how do we promote a culture within medicine where all members of the medical team um, feel that we can be empowered to be more than just a bystander? I'm flipping the script. Sorry, Tina, you and I haven't talked about this. We haven't. So and, far. No, and it's actually an extremely difficult topic to talk about. So I think you're really brave to uh, venture on this topic. Yeah, so what, but what have you learned so far? Because I would like to put this in the context of, you know, as, as you just said, Kate, we all know. So have you had bystander training? It helps me 
know the appropriate way to respond to your questions, if I have a sense of whether or not in medical school, before medical school, during your residency, you've had anything. Because technical questions are not, to answer your question, promoting a culture, you don't, you don't change culture through technical approaches, mm-hmm. right? I don't think we've had like sit down, this is what it's like to be a bystander and how to approach that situation, how to move forward from it, how to empower ourselves. I think so far the culture is we are open ears, we want to learn and then also be empowered to want to learn how to move past the bystander effect. Um, But we're hoping to learn from y'all's expertise and this is kind of our training here. I can stand corrected, but I, I personally don't think we've had formal training. Well, just to Dr. Mullen's point, um, I think that's something that's happening more in corporate America as well, is that people are having formal training. That's the new, just everything. She's an expert on diversity and inclusion. And so that's why she's asking you some of these questions is to understand what you need to know. So specific examples do help us. And when you've had bystander training, it means that you understand that role-playing these situations out ahead of time really does help tremendously. So, to, so then to not seem like I'm skirting your question, part of the response would be that I bristled a little bit at the notion that um, the specifics of the stories that you all shared didn't really matter because they, they were painful for me to read because they weren't little stories. And, and, and as um, somebody with a lot of senior leadership experience, it really made me start wondering what's the culture? And, and I didn't want to come and cause any of you more harm this morning because I can believe that everybody has been pained in one way or another but because of those narratives. But on the other hand, I, I feel like I would be failing you if I acted as if I could give you a few tips and then make you feel like that when you show up tomorrow or Sunday or Monday, things are going to be different because the cultures that we work in really do um, sort of reinforce our ways of being. And we've all, we all have our personal characteristics that also determine in part what we're willing to do to stand up for fairness and for justice and for safety. So part of the answer to the question is, when those kinds of things happen, and this is part of the answer, think about who you can go to to talk about them. Because if you can't identify anybody to have the conversation with about what what you observed, what troubled you, what you weren't sure about, what you, what you were standing there wishing somebody would do something about so that you could join on, or to question your, why it didn't bother you to see a child restrained, for example, then that says a lot. And part of what I've been doing in my work is saying we can't really expect learners to evolve in ways that we idealize if our faculty don't too. So the culture is not just created by you, it's enabled by those who invite you to come to this wonderful environment. Who can you go to to talk? 
would be one thing to think about. And if you can't identify someone, that's an issue to work through. And then a, a lot of the scenarios that were presented have some um, patient safety implications in which if you see a serious safety event, you're supposed to feel like you can report it in a way that it's part of a learning environment. So even being able to see these kinds of events, um, which you observe as um, falling into the realm of harm for individuals, then there is one kind of mechanism to, to consider approaching, but go on Dr. Ward. <laughs> Dr. Mullen has brought up some good points. I, I guess um, you had some questions. Were you gonna ask us some questions, Kate, or would you like for us to jump in? So Michelle, yes, my background is in nursing. I did practice as a nurse while I was finishing my degree in biology. And that gives me a little bit of a different perspective because as a nurse, you're actually taught how to interact with physicians, how to be a part of a team, I'd say. You're not allowed to ignore things. You're, supposed, you're a patient advocate. And as physicians, it's new for you, but it wasn't new for me. By the time I got into medical school, I already knew I have to speak up for the patients, anything that I think is harmful or detrimental in any way. So that is the background that I do come from. I also come from a background of being um, a little outspoken, to be really honest with you. I tend to speak my mind. So when you ask my opinion on certain things, I will tell you there is no definite right answer to that. There's ways to deal with these situations, but there's no definite right answer. All I can do is give you some tips and strategies and ways that I tell people how to handle it the best way they can. If, if you guys don't mind, if I interject here, I'm, I'm Mitchell Moore. I'm one of the third year residents. Um, and I, I think, you know, Dr. Mullen, the points that you were making were so, so true. And I think, you know, where I come from and where I struggle the most is I grew up I went to medical school in Mississippi um, where <clears throat> I was trained almost um, to suppress that, that, that desire to speak out and that desire to speak against injustices. And I can't speak for everyone and where they trained and, and where they went to medical school, but I feel like medicine as a culture and physicianhood as a culture has multiple levels of trainings and, and hierarchy that tend to suppress those, those desires to speak out because you don't know enough and you don't know enough until you're the attending physician. And then at that point in time, I think that culture and that hierarchy has been so ingrained into our psyche and into our, our positions as, as people and as providers that it's hard to turn around. And, you know, I think our program is trying to address that before it kind of gets too, um, you know, ingrained into us. So I, I guess, you know, my question would be, we've recognized it and what are our next steps? If, if that makes any sense. Sure. And so being able, being able to, and I appreciate your comments um, because some of that, that, training or inculcation is what 
also rolls into what people talk about as the hidden curriculum. All the stuff that beats the humanity out of you, the humanity that makes you want to be a doctor in the first place. And I, and I talk with first year medical students about this. And I've been talking to the, the um, leaders in undergraduate and graduate medical education about this because, you know, like first years can be all, you know, all about social justice. And then they go to the wards and they're looking to the residents and, and they're looking to the attendings and things are different. And, and it's not as, and, and I'm not letting nurses off the hook because people come to me with stories about what nurses do that they also need to talk about, such as the nurses who have um, like threatened to sign patients out AMA, like even when they still needed their IV antibiotics. So these things happen in the culture. And, and so that's why I go back to up close, how do you support one another? Are you, are you even comfortable? Do you feel you know, inside of you? Do you feel that there's somebody that you can look to? And even, even if you don't look to them and say, that was doggone wrong, or that was doggone right, and, and you know, open yourself up to discourse. Is there somebody that you can at least say, what did you see? Did you see what I saw? What do you think about that? Because bystanders can be in groups, but there's a sort of a, um, like a, a behavioral component of it that's also very personal. And let's not forget, you guys, I tell the medical students, they have been groomed to be competitive since they were in utero. Now, you all are pediatricians. You decide how you feel about that statement. And there's no, no political connotation to that statement. But it's hard to rinse that out of yourself and all of a sudden not worry about your evaluation, you know, on top of the hierarchy. And I'm from the Northeast. The hierarchy is there too. I, you know, I went to medical school in New York City a long time ago. And I remember attending saying to us way back then, black women are obese because they eat too much fried chicken and, and Latinas eat too many rice and beans. And they just go dolor, 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 dolor all the time. So when the people you revere are telling you those things, you have to figure out whether or not you really want to be like them or not. And what the image that is that you want to have among your peers. Because um, in a lot of these circumstances, there are other people in the group. If you're making rounds, if it's part of your team, and then it becomes more of a culture where you feel like you're becoming increasingly complicit in things that are uncomfortable. So can you create within yourselves that kind of group um, that is sort of supportive, but then also figures out how to be sufficiently activist in the context to problem solve? And I think, I think that's a really good point, um, Jewel, because one of the things I was concerned about, so in, in bystander effects that occur, the first thing you need to do is get an ally. And when she's talking about who do you go talk to, sometimes you don't feel comfortable talking to faculty. Sometimes you need to get another, a few students together so you can band together. That is the key to feeling like you can have a voice. All of you can band together and then take that to the faculty so you don't feel like it's just you. That is the biggest problem that people face is they think it's just them. I'm the only one feeling this way. When the first time you're attending makes a racist comment, you usually ignore it 
change the topic, right? Try to act like it didn't really occur. And the second time it happens, you try to use some of your body language to say, I'm sorry, did you just say that? Did I misunderstand something you said? And as you do some of these things, you're going to open the dialogue. And sometimes he'll say, yes, that's exactly what I meant. And you'll say, wow, I'm really surprised at the racist remark. I'm not calling you a racist, but I'm surprised at the racist remark. Just blowing it off over and over, it just facilitates that same culture of racism and everything that we're talking about. You are so fortunate right now because when I was in medical school and residency, nobody ever had was really willing to talk about it. Well, now the culture is, let's talk about it. Let's address it. In the entire world, that is the benefit of what's going on. So I'm actually excited that people feel comfortable talking about it in corporate America. My husband works at Dell. It is a mission of theirs to do diversity and inclusion, et cetera. So I think you're very fortunate right now to band together and bring these topics up that we were not allowed to talk about when we were, you know, practicing. So that kind of goes along with one of our questions in that, so, okay, we've, we've decided this is not something that's okay. We need to speak up. We've found our ally. Is the momentum important? Like, so let's say that racist comment is made. Do we need to address it in the moment with that look? Or is that something we can kind of tuck away and discuss later on? And how does that impact moving forward? I think that if you defer over and over, it's harder to come back to it. So I think you can change the topic after you've made the comment and let them know this isn't acceptable. This, you know, that was kind of offensive. So I would prefer that you don't say those things in front of me. It's contextual. I'm sorry, Tina, I cut you off. No, not at all. It's really contextual. You, You have the, and you have the situations where people are just sitting around talking, having lunch, as opposed to, you know, finally being able to go out and have a drink or not, uh, to being in a conversation with a patient and family or walking outside the door and, and different levels of acuity depending on if it's a clinical setting, exactly what's going on at the moment. So um, you might have uh, an array of, of immediate responses or non-response based depending on the context. So in the middle of a code, you might wait, right? You know, in discharge planning, you might, it might be different. And, and you may start like the Dr. Ward said with a question. And so, and the question doesn't always have to be direct. Sometimes, you know, I'm, I challenge people to consider how I was raised not to say stupid, how silly some of the things they say are. So, you know, I was in a a room with a bunch of administrative assistants in a job years ago. And one of the EAs looked at me and said, I was a medical director, you got your job because you're black. And so, and I raise this now because the other thing that, you know, we're talking about events, racist events, but a lot of times in your environments, people just want um, somebody to speak up if they say a little, what's called a microaggression. 
right? So that's why I bring this up. And you know, who's gonna who's gonna intervene with a microaggression? I thought, well, that was one of those silly comments. And I've learned, you know, I would not survive if I fought my life through every day, right? So I thought, okay, well, I'll just put it back on her. And I knew my predecessor was a white man. So I said, okay, so how did he get the job? He's white. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> That's great. Right? So yeah. it, so, and then it wasn't even defend me, it was make her think about things. And then start the conversation. Yeah. And then, or, or just, yeah, or just leave it. And then because the other the other thing is you have to pick and choose. You have to pick and choose how far you want to go with an individual. And that's why I also started, you know, going back to Dr. Gallus's um, comment about the, the details weren't as important because in a way they weren't if we're talking about bystander, but there are, there are gradients of, of severity. Like even in the traditional bystander literature, if it's the who's going to stand by if somebody's being raped or potentially killed is different, um, which is where some of the earliest literature came from on the topic, as opposed to what happens. But, you know, restraints, you know, Jayco has rules about restraints and individuals, right? Calling security, well, you know, we're watching, I'm trying not to watch the news every day about what happens when law enforcement gets involved in one way or another. And, And so you all, as pediatricians, can also think about potential harm as you see it in your patients when you think about a broader social context and what the harms could be, because part of what you're assessing as a bystander is what's the potential harm. So if you think about a child and then you think about all that's written about, say, the, the, um, the school to prison pipeline and discipline versus um, social and emotional interventions, for example, then you can start to really say, even though on the surface this doesn't look so harmful, what is this gonna be a different kind of adverse child experience for my patient? And what do I wanna do? Am I, am I answering some of how you might also sift through what you do at the moment? Uh-huh. You, can, you can say to a family member, I observed what happened, how are you? Because the other thing that's harmful sometimes is um, if you're silent, you seem complicit and it also then reinforces for families, the place they're coming for care is not a safe place and it doesn't have their interest. So something else you can do without necessarily going to the so-called perpetrator is to think about the, how, do, how do you assist the victim in the moment? Just with compassion. I think what happens is you also end up feeling so helpless in these situations. That feeling of helplessness when you're watching something and it's so chaotic and you just feel like, what do I do? How do I handle this? You know, your brain gets into that fight or flight mode and you're in shock at witnessing something so horrible. Well, you really have to be more compassionate with yourself later about these events because it is normal not to be able to handle that. Um, When there's that many people around, let's face it, when somebody's lying on the ground, bleeding, you're going to jump in because you're the only person around. If there's 20 people around, you're thinking, do I want to put myself at risk? You know, what do I do? How do I handle this? So I think being compassionate to yourself about that helplessness that you're feeling and how difficult it is and understanding 
increasing your awareness that this is a traumatic event and what are the triggers? Because stressful as it is, and all of you have been through it, later on you ruminate, you ruminate about it over and over thinking I should have done this, I should have done that. You can't control what's already passed. So focus on what you can control moving forward. Um, kind of delving a little bit deeper into the different situations that might come up for us. Um, more commonly, I think we experience them, at least in training, um, either between the provider and the patient or between colleagues within the medical field. Is there any difference in approach and timing we should take in both of those situations? I think Dr. Mullen actually uh, addressed quite a bit of that initially. It depends on the urgent nature of what's going on. When you talk about the provider patient, obviously if it's a dangerous situation right away, you're gonna jump in. When it happens with colleagues, many times you may feel like they need to step, stand up for themselves. This is ridiculous. That's the difference. You're like, we're all adults. Why can't they say something for themselves? Well, if they can't because they feel threatened or anything like that, then obviously you want to be there for them. But do understand if you jump in too soon, sometimes it leaves them thinking that you thought they were too weak. Maybe they weren't bothered by it like you were. So you sometimes have to delay and talk to them afterwards and say, hey, was that offensive for you? I just wanted to let you know that I'm here for you if you want to talk about it, because I found it offensive, but I didn't know if that's how you took it. So I just wanted to check in with you about that. And another part of the answer for that, Kate, could be how you create the culture that puts all of these kinds of scenarios that we're talking about for patients and families and for coworkers into the just culture. It, because bystanders, what, in general, we're talking about some kind of harm to someone, whether or not it's really an error, um, you know, an error, a serious safety event, but it's harm of some some type. And so that gets back to your original question. And it can't, and it's not just check the box, check the box. It going back to creating the culture, think about what, what's in the trade, what's in the training program. I'm really glad we're, you know, we're having this conversation. Everybody needs to have it, but everybody needs to have it in orientation and then be able to check in at different times. And, and, you know, maybe there, there need to be some faculty who really, um, aren't just the ones who can teach um, some technical things about bystander, being a bystander, but who can model it. So, you know, you may already know that you have some role models, but that's, that's the, in, in terms of really transforming the experience for the residents and the patients, you know, from a systems level, that's the way to think about things. Here, like in other places, you see less reporting of harmful events among people who are, are black and brown, you know, for patients who are black and brown than patients who are white, that they're either they're not recognized as harmful, they're not recognized as serious safety events, or people don't bother to report them in, in, to the same degree. So we've even talked about whether or not in the safety committee, people should ask, start asking the question, and this wasn't my idea, Hmm, did this patient's race have anything to do with it? Now, it's a hard question to just, it's not a really calling for a binary answer necessarily, although maybe everybody would want to automatically say no. But on the other hand, 
saying, can we even ask that question? Did this person's gender or gender identity have anything to do with it? Did this person's ethnicity have anything to do with it? Their, their ability or, or disability. So once we have, oh, Amanda. Uh-huh. yeah, I was going to kind of go further with it too. Um, so once we've decided to start the conversation and we've, again, we've have our ally to turn to, I assume would be a good part of the answer and starting the culture as well. But what happens when it doesn't go the way you want it to? You've spoken up, you've used your training and the intervention that you're trying to, you know, start or speaking up that just the response doesn't go well. What steps would you take then? I think I think Dr. Mullen brought that up earlier. Um, You have to know who you can go to. And that's something I'm sure Dr. Gallas has uh, brought to your attention. There should be HR departments like there is in corporate America and everywhere where if sexual harassment occurs, there are actually laws in place against this. So you need to find out what the policies are in the facility that you're, that you're at because you may have to take it up the chain. You may not just be able to just be quiet with it. You understand all the time the people who don't come forward when there's sexual harassment, you understand their motivations. They, they're scared. They don't know what's going to happen. Are you really going to believe me? Am I going to appear that I'm a troublemaker? So this is a time where you have to consider other people, not just yourself. Like she said, the culture. You have to consider the next person who comes along who's going through the same sexual harassment experience. If, if you saw someone administer the wrong medication or the wrong dose to a patient, any patient, what would you do? Anybody? Speak up. Let someone know. Well, okay. More specific. To whom would you speak up? Is there a process or would you just want to go talk to someone? Jessica looks like her hand is... Maybe you were just adjusting your, your seat. Um, my cat is in my lap. <laughs> but... <laughs> what would your cat do? <laughs> Okay. Was just, I was adjusting myself, but I mean, in those cases, when uh, there's a medical mistake, we would make uh, like an ERS, like a, in the event reporting system. So, so could that answer part of Amanda's question about like, if you really want to report an event, one of the things about just culture is it's, it's, Reporting isn't the invitation to call out somebody as bad or incompetent. It's it's an opportunity for the system to learn how to be better. And it's an opportunity for the person reporting to also have a conversation to to understand whether or not what they thought was such a, a, a serious event, whether or not it was, or to help understand the, the reasoning behind it. So could that also be a conversation to, even if you had, if you had a, a conference where you looked at some of the things that got reported, they might also fall into some of the realms of what, you know, bystanders, you know, some, some bystanders might have called anyway, because it's patient harm. And, and every, every doggone body who's part of the, the, the patient care environment is, is part of this. It's not just the doc. It's not just the docs, but if, if, if having a just culture is part of being like a continuous learning system, 
to try to put it in there, but then to also know that there are going to be people who actually are responsible for, for vetting what's reported and talking to the people is key because just culture also then um, requires that others be trained so that if they see something reported, they approach it the right way. So, and, and I'm, I, I have learned over time how to um, use questions and fact to engage. I have been called the elegant contrarian somebody who wrote like one of the seminal books on leadership. So, and, and, but a lot of people aren't willing to do that, but, and, and I don't do it just because of me. I do it because I see my job as in equity is around justice. It's around fairness for everyone. So, you know, so when I was a medical intern, so now this, I'm going back almost 40 years. I remember some, a young, a teenage girl being brought into the, ED, she couldn't, she couldn't extend her knee. She, she was keeping her knee at a 90 degree angle in a really strange, couldn't explain it in any orthopedic or neurologic way. So she had, so in, in asking her what happened, she had been visiting a family member in Philadelphia after a traumatic family event in New York City. And while she was sitting on the toilet, a ceiling tile fell and hit her on the head. And after that, she couldn't extend her knee. And every time anybody tried to get her to extend her knee, she was in excruciating pain. Other than the fact that she winced if you looked like you were gonna touch it, her knee, and, and that her knee was at 90 degrees, almost looking sort of volitionally at 90 degrees, there was nothing, nothing on exam, no warmth, no erythema, no signs of trauma. And my attending, the ED, who was the, the head of the ED, looked at this young Black girl and said, she must have GC arthritis. I'm not making this up. And he was convinced this was God's GC arthritis. Young Black girl from the city who couldn't flex her knee. And I thought, doggone it. He was ready to do an arthrocentesis on her. Like all the way to like having the prep kit and everything. And I just kept saying, no, no. So I said, let me just talk to her for a little while. Uh, just like any of you would. But I, you know, but I just kept, but I kept saying, well, but you know, for everything that went through my mind about differential diagnosis, GC wasn't coming up anywhere. Even if I had, whether or not I asked her whether or not she had sex, just when, just like looking at her. <laughs> so I started talking to her and asking her what was going on and talking about sitting on the toilet and the ceiling tile and all this other stuff. And the more we talked, I just, I said, can I just rub your knee? And so we went through, just rub your knee. You know, even now I wonder if I could ask somebody if I can rub their knee, but it's a different time 40 years later. And so over time, you know, I said, can I just see if your knee will like open up a little bit? And after a while, I had her like full range of motion, but it was, it, it wasn't, you know, you're a jerk. It wasn't this, that, but I also was not going to let watch this man stick a needle in this girl's knee. And I'm just curious, how, how did he respond to that after you took care of her? And did he recognize the... 
Well, so I think she had a conversion reaction, right? This happened. I think she had a conversion reaction. Good work. Good diagnosis. We need to get her some psychological information. Anyway, we got her to CHOP. So I called one of my uh, attendings who was um, an adolescent medicine specialist. And we, we got her out of HUP and got her set up for continuity. Uh, follow-up at CHOP in the adolescent clinic and they got her hooked into behavioral, but it was good work, but it wasn't, oh, silly me. And then I just didn't, I felt I wasn't going to take Dr. Jacobson and who also knew he was an expert because he had been at, at, in the Bronx working for years. So he knew the profile of, you know, sexually transmitted infections in, in black adolescents. So, you know, I figured that ought to be enough learning experience, but, and, and for me, it wasn't, I'm going to be insubordinate. I just knew, you know, I was going to learn a lot if this was really GC, but we weren't going to learn from an arthrocytesis at the moment. So I offer you that. that, that was 40 years ago. And it's not like my hero story. It's my story of, and you too can do this. So what did I do? I asked for time with the patient and that was my way of de-escalating or intervening. Thank you for sharing that. I think that um, that just speaks volumes to how so many things, right? Um, but that that taking that time, sort of questioning, like you said, being the contrarian when something doesn't fit, you know, saying what that just doesn't make sense, you know, um, and really and really pushing back on that. Um, did you find that your interactions with that particular physician, like sort of your, your opinion or the way you interacted with that person going forward was different? Well, at the end of the rotation, I learned that he rated me as one of the best interns they had ever had. But it put him in his place that way. You know, I've also, you know, I've had the flip side where people have told me I'm too outspoken. But, but at the end of the day, it wasn't about me. And, and, and you learn how to do these things. They work in other ways. Mm -hmm. Parent, I had to figure out how to do things with, at, the, at the elementary school. And then I could role model for my kids how to stand up for themselves and other people. They're in their 30s now and they call it, say, let me tell you what I did. It works in other parts of life. It's not just what happens in the hospital. And it's, it's about how you really learn to stand with your beliefs and do things in the way that are most comfortable for you, which is why Kate, I didn't like, I don't have just a list. You have to, you have to lead from your comfort zone. And I guess one of the things that she was talking about that, that I spent a lot of time doing was teaching patients how to advocate for themselves. And that was really crucial because as a family practice physician, when I refer you to somebody and the, referral specialist doesn't listen to you, that's significant. They come back to me saying, well, I tried to tell him this was going on and he really didn't listen. And then I have to call him up and have that conversation. So I asked our patients, can you write a list of questions? Let's go over what you want to discuss. Write a list of questions, of concerns, everything. And if you find somebody's not listening and you feel that they're discriminating against you, let's find a new physician for you. Let's find somebody that you can connect with because it's important to teach patients how to advocate for themselves as well. 
Any final parting words from either of you, Dr. Ward and Dr. Mullen? I can't thank you enough. Um, this was really amazing. Very oh, powerful. I sit on the um, Dell Medical School Academic um, Promotions and Tenure Committee. And as um, faculty are applying, uh, submitting dossiers for promotion, they have to include their evaluations. And we, we do look at them. Evaluations are a two-way street, right? People ask, people give you feedback. They're supposed to give you feedback through the course of your rotations and they should be asking you, how am I doing? That's another time when you can just in a conversation say, you know, um, help me, let's talk through this. I, this was an uncomfortable time and I wasn't sure what I, I wasn't sure how I should talk to you about how I was feeling. And then you used a lot of first person singular not a lot of second person, right? I wasn't sure about what I should have done to ask you about something um, that I was trying to understand that you did wrong or that you, did, that you didn't do the, that in a way that worked. But the other thing is, is that some people really honestly, without trying to harm an attending, will really comment in those um, end of the rotation evaluations on their observations of attendings with patients. And department chairs really are supposed to counsel, mentor, and groom their faculty. So that's another very just objective way to, to um, flag something that you then can rely on the system somebody's going to pay attention to. And I would just say as we're ending that I really admire all of you for coming up with these questions and the difficulty difficult situations that you're in. And I would encourage you to get together and talk about these topics freely with each other so you can feel more comfortable because anti-racist, anti-bias training is necessary in all institutions. And that may help your institution understand the significance of it. So all of you getting together and writing down these experiences and comments and things that you would like to see done differently this is your new generation. This is the generation that you are. That's why I admire you. People speak up in your generation. So um, I would encourage you to do that as well. And thank you so much for having us here. Thank you all. Thank you. Bye. Take care. So much. Thank you, guys. Thank you. We'd like to thank Dr. Ward and Dr. Mullen for taking the time to share their expertise through an honest discussion with us. For more tools and resources to further explore these topics, see the links in the description. Thanks for listening.